0: John 18, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup? The Father has given me. This is the word of the Lord for us this evening. Now, at the beginning of the original Shrek movie, you know, that series of movies with that big, green, ugly ogre. Well, at the beginning of the first movie, Shrek is having a pleasant evening alone in his swamp. He's gotten settled in to relax, and then he catches the sound of an approaching mob. Someone's posted a sign in a nearby village offering a reward for ogres and other fairy tale creatures. And a bunch of guys have gotten together, gotten themselves all psyched up, and they're going to go get the ogre. So they've grabbed, their por- they've grabbed their torches and pitchforks, and they've gone to the swamp to capture Shrek. Well, Shrek slips out of his house. He tiptoes around behind the mob, and then he sneaks up behind him and starts pleasantly talking about all these horrible, made-up things that ogres do to unwanted guests. And in the middle of Shrek's frightening little spiel, one of the guys gets his courage up and he jumps forward and starts swinging a torch at Shrek, saying, Back, back, I'm warning ye. Well, Shrek gets his finger a little bit wet and just snuffs out that three foot torch like it's a little match. And that guy drops the torch and cowers back with the rest of the mob. And then Shrek takes that opportunity to give this great, big, huge, spit filled roar. And the roar goes on and on, and pretty quickly that mob all starts screaming back at him. And so he roars and roars, and the mob screams. And then after a few seconds of this, Shrek stops. He leans over to the guys who are all scared to death now, and he whispers, This is the part where you run away. And the mob drops all their torches and pitchforks, and they run as fast as they can out of that swamp away from this great, big, powerful person who they could not possibly carry off. Now that sto- the story we read for today in John has just a little bit of that same sensibility to it. In John 18, after John shows us Jesus and the disciples in the garden, and actually in the Greek it's garden, though the NIV says olive grove, Jesus, uh, the, John turns the camera to Judas and to his band of soldiers and officials. Now, this is Judas the betrayer, Judas the traitor. This is Judas, the the disciple who's turning on his master, the creature who's turning on his creator. At this point in John, Judas has become the representative of everything that has gone wrong in the world. Judas slipping into this story in this garden is like Satan slithering into the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time, trying to derail God's plans. Judas is bringing the principalities and the powers of the world to face off against God in the garden. And it's really ironic in these verses that Judas and his band of thugs come armed with torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus, through his healing ministry, through his miracles, through even raising someone from the dead, has been battling back the forces of darkness in amazing, powerful ways supernatural ways and now here comes a bunch of village punks a bunch of little bullies they've grabbed their torches and their pitchforks and they've come out to capture this powerful teacher this miracle worker and of course just like that village mob didn't stand a chance against shrek the big ogre judas's group of thugs doesn't stand a chance against jesus in the garden now, when Jesus hears the mob coming, he goes out to meet them and he asks, "Who is it you, Who are you looking for? What are you seeking? And then when they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth, he responds, I am he. But what Jesus literally says there is just, I am. And if you think back to the Old Testament, if you think back to God's name, to the name of power, to the name that God's people were afraid even to say out loud that name was I am. In this story, Jesus is claiming divinity when he responds to the mob that I am the one that you're looking for. And John tells us that the mob, the powers of the world, even Judas, the great betrayer, can't stand up to Jesus and his power. This mob of men that's come with their little torches and their lanterns and their weapons suddenly gets a blast of Jesus, God's light of the world, and the light blows them away. This whole mob falls back, and they fall over. Jesus is giving them just a little tiny taste of who he is and of how much power he has, and those forces of evil can't even take that opening punch. They're already knocked out. Jesus has identified himself as the Lord of the universe and he showed that he has the power to back up that claim. But then Jesus asked them again, who are you looking for? And they managed to collect themselves enough to say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus tells them again, I told you that I am. But then Jesus goes on. He's already blasted them with his power. They're laying at his feet still or maybe they're just now managing to get back up. Now this would be an appropriate moment for Jesus to lean over and whisper to that group, this is a good time for you to run away. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't scare his attackers off with of the display of power. He doesn't send them running home in fear. Instead, Jesus lays aside any concern for his own safety. He lays aside his rights. He lays aside his ability to... And he focuses on keeping his disciples safe. Along with showing his power as Lord of the universe, Jesus shows his love as the savior of his people. He doesn't chase the mob away. He doesn't escape in some miraculous display of power. Instead, he goes on to say, I am. But if I'm the one you're looking for, let the rest of these men go. Take me but let my followers go free. Now remember, the Jesus' disciples were standing there with him. They may have been kind of edging away, trying to blend in with the scenery. They may have been right next to him, ready to start a fight. But Jesus puts himself between his disciples and the powers of the world. And he says to the forces of evil, You're looking for me. Let them go. When the forces of evil have come to capture Jesus, and presumably to capture his followers too, Jesus steps up and he makes sure that all the punishment falls on his shoulders. And just like in this text, Jesus saves his disciples, Jesus went on to save all of his people through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. The rest of the Gospel of John gives us this story arc of Jesus going down and down and down into the darkness until he gets to the bottom and he defeats the darkness and returns as the true light of the world, the savior of all God's people. As that first question that we read from the catechism tells us, Christ took on himself all the penalties of sin, all the righteous anger of God against sin, all the plans of the evil one, and Christ dealt with all of that for us. Christ set us free body, and soul from eternal condemnation. And he gained for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Much earlier in the Bible, when the forces of evil came to Adam in the Garden of Edom, Adam chose to sin. He went against God's will, and he dragged all of us into sin and death. But in this story, when the forces of evil come to the new Adam, come to Christ, Christ who had no sin... Christ gave, him up, gave himself up to the forces of evil for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. When the evil mob comes for us, Christ steps between us and that mob and he saves us. When Judas the traitor comes, Jesus the savior gives himself up to rescue all of God's people. But then when Judas fades from the scene and Christ the Savior comes more clearly into view, well, then good old Peter steps up, just like Peter always seems to. Last week and this morning, we talked a little bit about Peter. Um, In John 13, in one part, Peter tells Jesus he'll follow anywhere that Jesus goes. I'll even die for you, Jesus, says Peter. And now he gets a chance to prove it. And when trouble comes, Peter turns into a sword-swinging vigilante. When law and order break down, when people feel like justice isn't being done, when systems aren't getting it right, vigilantes pop up. And vigilantes are self-appointed judges, juries, and often executioners. They're people who see something wrong in the world, and they decide that they are going to fix it now. And in this story, Peter sees things going wrong. He sees things breaking badly for Jesus, and he decides to take matters into his own hands. I saw a movie a few years ago about an army veteran called Chris Vaughn, and after his time as a soldier, Vaughn came back to the little town he grew up in, and he found out that things have gone badly there. A new casino has been built, and the casino owner owner pretty much runs the whole town. What's worse, the casino employees are making meth and selling it to anybody and everybody, especially the kids in the town, but because of the casino's power, no one is going to touch them. Well the story goes on for a bit And then Vaughn's nephew ends up taking some bad meth And he's in the hospital in terrible shape And this is the breaking point So Vaughn hops in his pickup He blasts over to the casino He gets out He grabs this huge pole of 4x4 lumber From the back of his truck He goes into the casino And he starts smashing everything in sight He breaks the tables Throws over the chairs Smashes the slot machines And when the security guards come out to try to stop him He smashes them up too Finally, he throws his wood through a window. He stomps back out to his truck, and he drives off. Things still aren't right, but at least he's made his stand. He's worked off some of his injured outrage. Now, Peter in this story in John has that same sense of injured outrage. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows that he's on the right side, and he is going to fight for the right. So Peter grabs his sword, and he starts swinging. Now, there's something really good and commendable about Peter's passion to do what's right. He wants to get this good revolution started. He wants to defend his Lord. He's looking forward to the new kingdom, and he'll do whatever it takes to get there, even if he has to use his sword along the way. There's a lot to appreciate about Peter's passion. But in this case, Peter is still getting it wrong. Peter's trying to be the hero in this story, and he's fighting the wrong battle with the wrong weapon. You know, Peter's not alone in wanting to win with the power of his own sword. We probably don't see a lot of ourselves in Judas. But it might not be too much of a stretch, especially for some of us, to see a lot of ourselves in Peter. We know what's right. We know who the heroes and who the villains are. We know what needs to be done. We know that God is bringing his kingdom, and we know that we need to fight to make that happen, no matter what it takes. And there can be something really, really good about that. But sometimes, even when we feel like we're doing the right thing, it's possible for us to be fighting the wrong battles with the wrong weapons. In John 18, Jesus, the true Messiah, not the worldly Messiah, but the Messiah sent by God, is going to win but he's going to win by the power of his suffering. Remember, Jesus is entirely in control of this situation. Jesus could disable all of his enemies, and he has already in this text, just by saying a couple words. But in John's story, Jesus, yeah, he's gonna be the hero, and Jesus is gonna be the only hero in this story, but he's going to be an unexpected kind of hero. Instead of taking on evil with a swinging sword and battle cries, Jesus is going to take on evil by becoming a suffering servant. While Peter wants to use the sword to solve all his problems right away, Jesus is getting ready to tread a different path, to lay down his very life for his followers. So unlike Shrek, Jesus doesn't go on screaming at his enemies and chasing them out of the garden. Unlike Chris Vaughn, Jesus doesn't grab a big hunk of wood and start beating everybody up. When Peter the vigilante whips out his sword, Jesus the suffering servant tells him to put it away. God's plan doesn't require vigilante justice. This is not going to be a display of power on power, sword against sword. This is an act of chosen suffering. John shows us a Jesus who by submitting to suffering is going to subvert and do away with all earthly power by a greater power. When all earthly hope is lost, when it seems like there's no hope for things to work out right no matter what we do, Jesus takes over and he carries us the rest of the way home. Sometimes Jesus doesn't conquer by the sword. He conquers by drinking the cup of suffering all the way to the bottom and then by turning that into new life. Salvation does not come to God's people through Peter's swinging sword and it doesn't come through our plans. It's not about what we do. It's not about how hard we fight for righteous causes. It's not about how much good we do in our lives. Salvation isn't even about how hard we believe or how much we can work ourselves into a sincere feeling of faith. This is all about what God has done and what God is doing on our behalf. Jesus suffered and died for us Even if we aren't good enough, even if our faith doesn't seem strong enough, even if things don't seem to be going the right way, Jesus has suffered for us, and in suffering, Jesus has conquered evil forever. Christ really was the only necessary, sufficient, atoning sacrifice. He suffered to set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and to give us new life in Christ. If today you belong to Jesus, you are now free from condemnation. You now have grace, righteousness, and eternal life. If you believe in Jesus, you don't need to be a sword-swinging vigilante either to guarantee your own salvation or to make God's kingdom come in this world. Jesus' work has already saved all of us, and God himself is at work to make things right in this world. So we still do good things. We still fight for the right. We still support just causes. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, we put our swords away and we follow Jesus' plan. We throw ourselves on God's grace. We wait on God's timing and we trust that Jesus really does know what he's doing. When Judas betrayed Jesus, Jesus gave himself up to save his people. When Peter took up the sword to fight for Jesus, Jesus laid aside earthly power in order to defeat evil forever by a greater power. In our lives, when it seems like darkness is going to win, when we've been betrayed, when things are not going well for us, Jesus is still our Lord and Savior. Jesus stood in the face of all the powers of evil. And Jesus chose to embrace suffering, to drink the cup of destruction and judgment all the way down in order to save us. When Jesus sacrificed himself for us, he really did set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation, and gained for us, for each of us, God's grace, God's righteousness, and God's eternal life. Let's pray.